Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here with you. Uh, so I was actually not supposed to speak today. Um, Jim was in a nine, it uh, wasn't a joke, but uh, Jim was in a nine-part series, and uh, this is going to be the last uh, sermon of the, of the series uh, on Fruit of the Spirit, and we'll get to that in a second. He wasn't able to speak this Sunday because, as some of you heard, his, on Wednesday his beloved father passed away. And so he went home to Washington to be with him. And uh, they were very grateful that all seven of his dad's kids, uh, including Jim, were there with him. And his um, Dan, Jim's dad, his wife was there too. The whole family was together there when he passed away. He was just about to turn 89 years old, had been married for 70 years, and was an incredible, incredible father. So we just want to take a second to pray for their family. Father, we thank you um, <clears throat> for the incredible gift that you gave to Jim and his family um, through this, this man that you created, Dan. And we are so grateful for Dan because we would not have our pastor, Jim, if it were not for him. And we are grateful for the way that he raised his kids. And we ask now for comfort in their lives during this time of grief, that you would be close to them, that you would lift them up, that you would draw them closer together, that through this time, rather than driving them apart as, as sometimes can happen during times of stress and sadness, but this would bring them together and bring them closer to you and that they would see that you are loving and comforting them even in the midst of times of great sadness. So we thank you for his life and the way that we are blessed by him even though we never met him before. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So here we are at the end of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit... Uh, the series is called Getting Ripe with God. It's talking about the, how fruit gets ripe and God develops these different fruit of the Spirit in our lives, lets them get ripe, lets them get nice and, uh, and strong. And what those fruits of the Spirit are, um, are different virtues that God's Holy Spirit develops in our life as we choose to follow Him, as we choose to do His will. Uh, he strengthens those fruits in our life. And um, the Apostle Paul talks about these fruits. Apostle Paul was a first century church planner. And he wrote about these fruits to a church in Galatia. And this is what he says. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, as opposed to the fruit of our flesh, or the fruits of the, that, that happen when we um, live according to our own desires, rather than the desires that the Spirit has for us. The fruit of the Spirit uh, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And today, we're going to dig into this final one, this is the final part of this series, self-control. Now, this, the Greek word for self-control, there's, there's no real mystery there there's, uh, about what exactly it means. It means pretty much what the word self-control means. It means the ability to control yourself, or self-mastery, you might say. It means the ability or the decision to choose what you don't want to do when you know you should do it, and the decision to choose uh, what you want to do when... Uh, okay, now I messed that up, now didn't I? It's the decision to not do what you want to do when you know you shouldn't, and the decision to do what you don't want to do when you know that you should. That is self-control. That's what he's talking about here. And so the question I want to start by asking you is simply this. Do you want self-control. Is that something you really actually want? Now, maybe that seems like a, a dumb question to you. Like, of course, I want self-control. You know, it'd be nice to, to have some more of that. I'll take some of that if someone's handing it out. Um, but 
there's actually a lot of benefits to not having self-control. And the reason we know this is because if there was no benefits to self-control, or to not having self-control, if there was no benefits to not having self-control, we would all have a whole lot more self-control. We'd all be like, you know, forget not having self-control. It's horrible. I just want to have self-control. But no, there's benefits to self-control. So we have to stop and ask, do I really want self-control if there's benefits to not having it? So what, what are those benefits? Well, you can think of a lot of them. I, I thought of five that we can look through right here. And uh, number one is you don't have to develop it. Uh, self-control, if, if you could just flip a switch and you had perfect self-control, then probably all of us would be like, yeah, I want some self-control. But that's not how it is, is it? You have to develop it. You have to work on it. Self-control is like a muscle. Self-control is like a muscle. The more you work it, the stronger it gets. But it's not easy to work that muscle. It's probably the strongest, the hardest muscle for us to work out. And it is exhausting. And when you fail, it makes you want to give up and not work on it anymore. So if you don't have any self-control, you don't have to develop it. You don't have to put in the hard work of working on that muscle to make it stronger. So there's one benefit. Another would be you can do everything that you enjoy. You can do whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want. You can treat people however you want. You could sleep with whoever you want, however you want, whenever you want. You can do whatever you want. It's no holds barred. That's a benefit to not having self-control. Also, if you don't have self-control, you don't have to do anything that you don't enjoy. You don't have to force yourself to do things that are, that are for, you don't have to force yourself to clean your car. You don't have to force yourself to go to a meeting that you know you should go to, but you really don't want to. You don't have to force yourself to work out. Uh, every, we, have a, we have a preschool here at Hope called Hope for Kids. And um, every year they have a Christmas pageant, and I film interviews with their kids and edit it into a video, uh, like I do for our Christmas Eve service with our kids. I'm working on one right now. got some hilarious stuff ready for that, so make sure to be here Christmas Eve because it's going be, to be funny. But... When I was interviewing these kids at the preschool, one of the questions I asked them is, what is the worst toy ever? And one of them said, doing exercise. And I said, I think that's the worst toy ever, too. So if you don't have self-control, you don't have to force yourself to exercise. You don't have to force yourself to do things that you uh, don't want to do. That's one of the benefits of not having self-control. Number four, a benefit of not having self-control, you can hang out with whoever you want. I don't know how, if this is hard for you to admit or not, or it just seems kind of natural to you, but whether we want to admit it or not, the truth is we are very influenced by the people that we spend our time with. Our behavior is influenced by the way other people around us behave. Our emotions and our uh, beliefs are influenced by the people that we spend time with and want to be accepted by and love and care about. So, the problem is that or the, the benefit of not having self-control is that um, you can hang out with whoever you want because if you, if you want to have self-control, you have to be a little bit pickier about who you hang out with. If you decided, okay, here's a certain habit or a behavior I need to break, and I know that when I'm around this group of people, I, I give into it and I do it every single time they're doing it. So you might have to say, I don't want to be around, I, not, you know, I want to be around those people, but I'm going to have to have an awkward conversation and spend less time with those people. If you don't have self-control, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter how people are influencing you. You don't have to have those awkward conversations. You don't have to uh, be choosy about your friends. You can hang out with whoever you want. And number five, sort of in a similar vein, 
you won't be mocked for not having self-control. Some of you, maybe you've, you used to have a bad habit or an addiction that you used to give into all the time with a certain group of friends, and maybe you found that when you decided you were to stop doing that, your friends weren't as supportive as you hoped they would be. And, and this is something that happens to a lot of people, and it's something that's been happening for thousands of years. In fact, the apostle uh, Paul, I'm sorry, uh, was this Paul or was this Peter? This was Peter. Um, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, wrote about how this happened thousands of years ago. He said, for the time has passed, uh, for the time that has passed was sufficient for you to do what non-Christians desire. So all the stuff that God says that I don't want you to do because I care about you and want something better for you, you've had so much time already to do all those things. You've had plenty of time to sow your wild oats. And you lived back then in debauchery, with evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. So they, these people who are still living that way, are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness, and they vilify you. Sometimes, when you decide to give up a certain behavior, people interpret that as you judging them, or you condemning them. Are you hating them? And so they attack you for it, or they mock you, or they make fun of it. But if you don't have self-control, you can keep doing all those things, and nobody is going to, your, your close group of friends is not going to make fun of you for having a, a set of behaviors that's different than the ones that they do. So those are some benefits to not having self-control. Now, you probably, as you're hearing that, you're thinking, okay, yeah, that maybe there's some benefits, there's some nice things, but there's certainly some consequences to not having self-control as well. Maybe some of you have experienced them. Let's take a look at just three of them. I'm sure you can think of a lot more. One, if you have no self-control, you become a slave to your desires. The more that you do something you enjoy, the more you do something that you enjoy. You tend to do it more and more, and if you're not careful if you don't have self-control it gets out of control and it gets in control of you it has it has control over yourself and the thing that you used to enjoy it takes a lot more of that to be able to enjoy it and so you have to do it more and more and more and pretty soon you feel like you're not in control anymore you've got an addiction you feel like a like a slave in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible, there's a wise saying that was written. It says this. It says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. When you don't have self-control, when you haven't developed it, what happens is that your desires come into your life like there's a hole in your wall. That self-control would be a great wall from those desires. But it just comes right in without any resistance and enslaves you and takes control of your actions and you don't feel like you're in control anymore. You feel like a slave to those desires. That's one of the consequences of not having self-control. Also, neglecting self-control uh, for a moment can lead to suffering from regret for a lifetime. A lot of you know of, you can think of one moment in your life that you still regret to this day. And you would do anything to go back and change that one moment. And maybe it was a big thing you did. Maybe it was the first step in a long string of steps that, got you, that, that, that sent you into a place you greatly regretted. Because the desire 
to do what you wanted to do the first time. It was small and it wasn't that big of a deal. But then the desire got a little bit bigger and you took a bigger step and the desire got bigger and it was harder to resist and it got bigger and bigger until it was completely out of control. And you regret that first step because the desire would not have, not have grown out of control if you hadn't just taken that first step in the wrong direction by lapsing in self-control. And similar, similar to number two, number three is, is the, the ripple effect. David is, was a hero in the Bible. He was a king, and he was a man after God's own heart. He, he loved God. He honored God. He wrote some of the most beautiful, inspiring, and powerful uh, music about God. Lyrics that he wrote we use in songs that we sing today. He, what he did has influenced millennia past uh, what, what the time that he actually wrote those songs. They're still influencing us in our, in our lives. He was uh, a powerful warrior. He was a great king. He was beloved. He was a handsome man. The ladies were a fan of David. He was easy on the eyes. He had all this great stuff going for him, and he would have had this untainted legacy if he had not had one moment of lapse in self-control that caused a cascade of a whole bunch of other horrible things. One day, he was uh, on his, uh, at his palace, and he was looking out over his city, and he saw a woman, Bathsheba, bathing on the roof. He liked what he saw. He brought her over to his place, and he slept with her. And if there was no ripple effect, it, everything would have ended right there. That would have been the end of it. But that's not how our stories usually go, because there is a ripple effect. One thing causes another, causes another. And she got pregnant, and that caused him to take another action that turned him into a manipulator. He got her husband, Uriah, to come, and he, he tried to get him drunk and tried to get him to sleep with her so he would think that she was pregnant. It was, it was his child. It was Uriah's child. But that didn't work. So David got really frantic. Another ripple in the pattern. And so he sent Uriah out to the front lines of the battlefield because Uriah was fighting in a war at the time, but he made sure that he was right on the front and made sure that he was killed, so David became a murderer. And God was not pleased. And God put consequences in his life for what he had did. And his whole life fell to shambles. And if you read the end of his life and what happens to his family, it's just everything falls apart because of the ripple effect, because of a lapse in self control. And when we don't have self-control, oftentimes we find ourselves falling victim to this ripple effect the same way that David did thousands of years ago. So the question is, do you really want self-control? Because there's benefits to not having it, but there's also consequences to not having self-control as well. Now, wherever you land on that, whether you want self-control or, or you're not, you don't want self-control, here's what I bet's true of everyone in the room, that the people that you care about the most, your friends and your family and your kids and your parents and your, your wife and people that are close to you, you want them to have self-control. You want them to have it because it'll affect how they treat you and because you care about them and you know there'll be consequences if they don't. I bet you really, really, really want politicians to have self-control right? And I bet that the people that you care about the most want you to have self-control as well. So if you decide, yeah, self-control, there are some difficult parts to, it's difficult to have self-control. 
It burns like building a muscle. It can be frustrating at times. If you decide that, yeah, it's worth it, I want to develop it, then I would say, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Invite him into your self-control journey. Ask him for help. Because you, you don't have to be a Christian to develop self-control. You don't have to be a Christian to know that there's benefits and consequences to having self-control and benefits and consequences to not having self-control. But if you invite Jesus to be a part of your life to help you, in to help you with self-control, you don't have to do it with your own power. You have a power that is stronger, available to you, to help you to do this. Now, one of the things that we've heard throughout this series is not only does God develop the fruits of the Spirit in our life, but we're also commanded to develop these fruits of the Spirit in our life. So the first three are love, joy, and peace. And we're commanded all throughout the Bible to love. One example of that would be when Jesus said to his disciples the night before he died, he said, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Everyone will know you by the, uh, the, everyone will know by this that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The defining quality of a disciple of Jesus is supposed to be love. We are, God is not just working in the life of those who follow his spirit to develop love. He's also telling them, I want you also to be working to develop this alongside the Holy Spirit. Joy is the, is the second fruit of the Spirit, and we're told by Paul in his letter to the Romans, rejoice in hope. Develop the ability to rejoice, to see the positive things in your life and thank God for them. Endure in suffering, persist in prayer, and peace. We're, we're not just told uh, to, to, uh, that God will develop peace in our life, but we're also commanded to, to live peaceably with other people. As much as it depends on you, Paul says a little bit later in this chapter, to live at peace with one another. So, God, as we, as we choose to follow God, as we choose to follow his spirit and do what he wants rather than we want, we are on, in our part developing those fruits and God is working in our hearts developing those things as well. You do it together with Jesus. It's a joint effort. But if you follow Jesus, if you invite him into your life, if you ask him for forgiveness, if you choose to make him the Lord of your life and, and, and are trying and working to live according to his will, he will give you his spirit and help you develop these incredible fruits, including self-control. So, the Holy Spirit partners with us, and um, we aren't alone. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in a letter that he wrote to a man named Titus, he writes this, he says, um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, a lot of times when people think of the grace of God, some, for some people it's just limited to the idea that Jesus died for our sins. Meaning, we deserve punishment for the wrongs that we have done. That's the just thing to have happen, is that everyone who uh, does what is wrong uh, has to face justice for that. Because it's just to have justice. But... Uh, God loves us so much, he doesn't want us to face that justice, so he pays the penalty for us. Jesus did that by dying on the cross for our sins, and you can ask him for forgiveness and have that gift count for you. That's a lot of times where people, first thing that comes to mind when they think of God's grace, and sometimes for some people it's limited to that, but there's a lot more to it than that. And Paul talks about another aspect 
of what that is that's relevant to what we're talking about today. So another aspect of his grace, he says, for the grace of God, God has appeared, uh, bringing salvation to all people. It trains us to reject godless ways, to not do the things God says, don't do that, that's gonna, it's not going to turn out well. And worldly desires, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. One of the ways God's grace is expressed to us is by training us. And one of the things he trains us to do is to have self-control. Now, Paul talks about his present age. I imagine it was very difficult to have self-control in his present age. But in our age, we have things that I'm sure the people in uh, Paul's age would think is just mind-boggling and probably magical, the way that TV can get straight to us and demand us to buy uh, exactly what they want, uh, the, exactly what they're selling. Advertisement algorithms on social media are designed to figure out when you are weakest, when your desire is strongest, and advertise to you at the exact right time following the exact right post, the exact amount of seconds after this post, this ad comes up. It finds you at your weakest. It finds you when your self-control is at your lowest, and it takes advantage of you. We live in a really difficult present age where things that are addictive have become far more addictive and powerful and alluring, so it's so, so, so difficult to resist. We live in a very difficult present age. That's why it's so important to know that you can have Jesus as your personal trainer. He is a trainer. That's what we're learning here. He can be your personal trainer. He partners with us. Now, let me ask you a question. What happens... If you have a personal tra trainer, you hire a personal trainer, but you never spend any time with your personal trainer. Not a whole lot, right? You're not going to get very far. That's why it's so important to spend time with Jesus. He is your trainer. And you spend time by Jesus by reading his word. It is God's word to us, the Bible, by telling him what's on your mind, by asking him for help, by telling him where you need help having self-control, by prioritizing church where you can be with other people who can encourage you and tell you things that God wants you to know and hear about the Bible and have it explained in a way that makes sense. Because sometimes the Bible can be really confusing. And to prioritize meeting with other Christians during the week to be able to encourage each other and uh, have people who, are, who trust God and follow God and learn from God speak into your life and help you see areas where you need to improve and help you see areas where you're killing it. That's how Jesus trains us. He trains us through those ways. So if Jesus is a great personal trainer, man, we got to spend time with the most amazing personal trainer ever. Because this is like, think about how incredible this is. It's like having the guy who invented karate, who's also like the best karate person in the world, and that times a billion. Because Jesus not only knows everything about you, he knows everything. He created you. He also became a human and lived a perfectly self-controlled life without sin. Why would we not be desperate to spend time with that personal trainer? He's an incredible personal trainer, and he wants to help. So let us spend time with him. So he has a role in helping us develop the fruit. The, the Holy Spirit has a, has a role in helping us develop the fruit of the Spirit. We have a role. And when I talk, I want to talk about something that maybe can shed some light on how we can be better at um, developing these fruits 
of the, of the Spirit, specifically self-control today. And I want to talk a little bit about neurochemistry to learn about how that is. And let's go back in history a little bit to 1953 when a couple of scientists named James Old and Peter Milliner were doing some experience, experiments on rats. And they put an electrode in this rat's brain and shock and stimulate a certain part of the brain. And they found they could almost control the rat like they had a remote control. They could get it to go where they wanted it to go by uh, stimulating this part of the brain at certain times. The, brain, the, the rat seemed to enjoy this feeling. And so they could kind of motivate it to do certain things. They also found it liked it more than food. If the rat was extremely hungry and food was placed in front of it, and then they used... The, put a shock to that part of the brain, the rat would stop and wait for another shock rather than go and eat the food. And they found if they gave a switch to the rat to use, the rat would just keep pressing the switch back and forth to stimulate that part of the brain until the rat was so exhausted it would just pass out. Um, so another guy by the name of um, Robert Heath at Tulane University had the great idea, hey, let's try this in humans. So he put some electrodes in some human brains in the same part of the brain as the rat and uh, gave them a switch that they could use and documented that they would do about 40 shocks to that part of their brain per minute. And uh, there was one patient they had when they turned the current off to the, to the switch so it wouldn't work anymore. He kept pressing it 200 times after they turned it off. And uh, so they were thinking, maybe we found the pleasure part of the brain. This is the part of the brain that produces pleasure. And yet, the, the patients were saying that though it's, it, it felt good, it also produced an incredible amount of anxiety that at any point, the current was going to be turned off and they weren't going to be able to do this anymore. And one of them described it as extremely frustrating because it always felt like they were just about to receive this great relieving sense of satisfaction and pleasure, but it never quite got to where they were hoping it would get when they pressed that button. And what the, so they, they thought they found the, the pleasure center of the brain. What they actually found was the rewards center of the brain. And the reward center of the brain is what drives you to do something else. It is the desire part of the brain. It's what makes you want to do something, not the thing that feels good when you've accomplished something or got something, got the thing that you desire. It says, if you do this then you're going to feel real good. That's the reward part of the brain. And Kelly McGonigal, in her book, The Willpower Instinct, talks a lot about um, how this part of the brain works. It works by releasing dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that drives you to do whatever uh, you see that you think that you want. So if you, you, know, you see a for sale sign, your brain might blast you with some dopamine. Or you see an alluring person wearing some alluring clothing, it may blast you with some dopamine and cause you to pursue that person. If you see an incredible commercial on TV for something that looks really delicious, bam, you're going to get hit with some dopamine that's going to cause that desire in you to seek that thing out. Um, the rats, if you deprive their brain of dopamine, they still enjoy sugar, but they just are not very motivated to go and eat it. So it shows that this isn't the pleasure part of the brain, it's the rewards part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that drives you to do something. Um, so when you see food, or when you see someone sexy, or you see a sale, the dopamine factory starts to go off. And when you get a dopamine hit, your 
desire for that thing that you see uh, is not the only thing you're more likely to be susceptible to. You're more likely to desire or to go and purchase or imbibe in a whole bunch of other things just because you saw this one thing that gave you dopamine. Dopamine is not like item selective. It can cause you to motivate you to do all sorts of different things, even though this was the thing over here that stimulated the dopamine release in your brain. Kelly McGonigal writes in her book, for example, erotic images make men more likely to take financial risks. And fantasizing about winning the lottery leads people to overeat. So dopamine can uh, cause you, even though you're desiring this thing over here, it can cause you to lack self-control in other areas. And you know who knows this really, really well? Companies who want to sell you something. They want your brain to just be a constant flood of dopamine whenever you see their product or whenever you're in their store. That's why when you walk into the store, they have the best items right up front because they know even if you don't buy those items, if it's something that you want, there will be more dopamine released in your brain and you will be more likely to buy more than you intended to when you walked into the store. When you walk into Costco, there's those incredibly beautiful TVs. They'll be like, man, it'd be nice to have that in my home, but I don't have $40,000 to spend on the TV. But they know that you're more likely to buy more of other things inside the store because you saw that when you walked in. With uh, food samples, studies have shown they actually make you hungrier and thirstier. And they make you, even if you don't try them at all, just seeing them will make you more likely to buy more than you intended to. So they also, uh, companies have realized that uh, variety and novelty activate the reward system of your brain as well. So if something's new or it's different, you're more likely to uh, buy more stuff or give in or, or have a lapse in self-control. So that's why Starbucks doesn't have pumpkin spice latte all year round, right? It's just part of the year because you get bored of it and then you get excited again when it comes back. It's why Taco Bell uh, releases new, new items, but it still has all of the same ingredients inside of it, right? Because it gets you excited stimulates the reward system in your brain and it causes your self-control to be reduced. So, what do we do with that knowledge that we live in a world designed to take advantage of dopamine? Well, God, he wants to help you. He wants you to be self-controlled. He wants you to overcome uh, desires to buy things that you shouldn't buy, but also a lot of other things that he knows are not good for you as well. There's a lot of things that he's laid on the Bible. I don't want you to do these things because they're ultimately going to hurt you. Even if you can't see why I'm telling you not to do this, I want you to trust me because guess what? I made you and I made humanity and I know what's best and I love you and I proved it by dying for you. So how can we take these, what we learned about dopamine and use it to our advantage? Let me give you three ideas about how we can use this in our everyday life. First one is to spot the traps. So next time you go in the store, I just want you to look around, take a look at the four sale signs, take a look at the mannequins and think about how they have hired professional designers to get the outfits just right that they put on there. Think about the models they use in the pictures they use, they hang on the wall wearing their clothes. Think about what they have right in front when you walk in the door. Think about the music that they are playing. Think about what you smell. Smell is a, can be a huge dopamine release. There's a company called Scent Air that actually creates and, and sells 
sense that companies blast into or outside of their buildings to get people to be more likely to spend things when they go inside because they know that it actually works. So look for those traps and take note of what they are for two reasons. One, because if you can realize what's going on, you'll have more self-control and be like, you know, you'll be a little bit more indignant. Like, hey, I'm not going to let you and your little tricks work on my brain, okay? And then secondly, it's going to come in handy for the third step. So secondly, hide the traps. Hide the traps. You know, companies have a great way of packaging things so that when they get into your house, they're very alluring as well. If there are things that you if you see the thing that you're trying to give up, you're more likely to give into it. So it's important to, if, you know, if you're trying to quit smoking, don't have your cigarettes in a place where you can see them. If you're trying to quit drinking, don't put it in a place where you can see it. If, you have, if you're trying to lose weight, don't have enticing looking foods just lying around in clear view. Put it out of sight, put it out of mind. If you're trying to overcome like a, a porn addiction, there's certain shows that aren't porn that you shouldn't be watching because of the way it's going to tempt you, the way it's going to uh, activate your reward system. There's certain sites that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong about them, but because of your specific situation, you should not be going to those sites. It's going to take wisdom to not only spot the traps, but to hide the traps so that you are taking advantage of the reward system in your brain. And the third, third one is this. Dopaminize newer word, dopaminize your dreaded tasks. Think about the things that you know you want to do, not just the things you're trying to avoid to do, but you know you want to do, the things you've been putting off, the things you've been, oh, I got to do that, but it's just been so hard. Think about those, and how can I surround those tasks with the things that get my dopamine uh, flowing? Think about what you learned when you went into the store and you spotted all the traps, the music, the scents, the sounds, the, the flavors, when you surround a task that you don't like doing with those sorts of things, with the music you like, with the, maybe the food you like, maybe going to do a task in a location that you really enjoy. Uh, if you have a, a scent you can spray that you love, that can actually help with motivation and help with self-control. Um, in uh, recovery groups, they often use a fishbowl. Uh, where they'll put a bunch of different cards in it. Each one might have, like, you could win $1, one card if you draw it. Okay, well, you get to draw a card out of the fishbowl if you get a clean drug test. And you might win $1 by pulling out a card. You might win $20, and there's one card in there that lets you win $100. And there's a bunch of cards in there that just say, great job, you got a clean drug test, which is, you know, good. It's awesome. Um, and what they've found is that this helps people to, to stick to the recovery group. And uh, it's been shown in a couple different ways. One test was done. They, they tested one recovery group and compared it to another recovery group, one with the fishbowl and one without the fishbowl. And the one with the fishbowl, uh, they found that, um, yeah, they, those with the fishbowl, 83% completed all 12 weeks, 20%, uh, only 20% without the fishbowl completed all 12 weeks of the recovery program. And with the fishbowl, 80% uh, passed all the drug tests, with, and 40% without the fishbowl did not. They also found after the recovery group that um, people, they also found after the recovery group, people were far less likely to relapse if they had been in the group with the fishbowl. And um, so one of the things you can do is promise yourself 
a reward if you, if you say the thing you really want to do till after you accomplish the task. And it can't be something, it can't be the thing you're trying to avoid. It's not like, you know, I'm trying not to eat, so I didn't, uh, you know, I skipped a meal today, so now I'll eat extra later as a reward. It has to be a different kind of reward that's not the thing you're trying to develop self-control over. Uh, and I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up now. Um, and I just want to finish this as you guys think about ways to implement all of that. Just by saying this. Don't give up. Don't give up. It's very tempting when you're, self, you're trying to develop self-control to give up. Because it hurts to fail. And it really hurts for some of you because you've tried so many times and you just keep falling back to where you were before. And it's like, I don't want to take the risk of having to go through that pain again. And I get that. But I want to encourage you, try again. Try again. Try again. There is power in patience. A wise saying in the Old Testament of the Bible says, through peace, or through, uh, actually I wrote that wrong in there, sorry. That's not actually what it says. This is why I should copy and paste the verses and not transcribe. Um, through patience, I had fruit of the Spirit on the mind. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. I copy and pasted all the other ones, but for some reason I didn't do this one. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. Think about how powerful you could be if you had the power of a ruler. That's powerful. And if you are patient with a ruler, if you take long enough time, if you have access to them, and you continue to present your case, and you continue to present your case, and you don't give up even when it doesn't work, even a ruler can be persuaded. That's a lot of power. Patience can give you a lot of power. Don't let the fear of failure rob you of success. Don't let the fear of failing again rob you of success. Listen, on everyone's path towards success, there's going to be a lot of failing. There's going to be a lot of falling down. There's going to be a lot of messing up. There's going to be a lot of sinning. There's going to be a lot of regrets. But don't give up. That's the one way to guarantee you will not be successful. Continue to try. Continue to work at self-control. Continue to develop it. Like I said, it is a muscle and it gets stronger the more you use it and it gets weaker the less that you use it. Continue to try. For a Christian, Jesus is the greatest example of self-control. And I think the greatest example in his life of self-control was the night before he was crucified. Imagine how you would feel knowing that you were going to be crucified the next day. His angst was so great, he was sweating blood and begging his father, if there's some other way to accomplish the forgiveness of sin, let that happen. But here's how he showed self-control. He said, not my will, not my will, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. That is what self-control looks like if you are a Christian. God, I know what my will is. I know what I want. I want to spend my money on me. I want to spend my time on me. 
I want to give in to my lust. I want to give in to my greed. I want to give in to my laziness. I want to live my life for me, God. That's my will, but not my will, but yours be done. Your will be done. You know what's amazing? It's because Jesus did not fail to put that into practice and died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Now when we fail at that, when we fail, when we say my will be done rather than yours, we can come to Jesus, we can come to our Father in heaven and say forgive me. And he forgives you because he loves you beyond what you can imagine. Beyond what you can imagine. His love and affection for you is beyond what you can imagine. And he wants you to succeed. And he wants you to keep trying. And he wants you to develop self-control. And he wants you to keep working that muscle. And he will work with you as you try. So do not give up. And Jesus taught us, he wants us to remember that sacrifice that he made on the cross that showed the greatest act of self-control I can imagine. 